Welcome to the Canteen Podcast, a show for anyone who has feelings about food. Join host Ali Houston as guests open up about their relationship with food and their thoughts on nutrition. Nourish yourself with the Canteen Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of the Canteen Podcast. I'm your host, Ali Houston. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. Please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Okay, and we're recording. And I'm lucky enough to have with me today Lisa Bailey who is a nutritionist, health coach, and personal trainer here in Scotland. She's also a carnivore who eats no food from plants at all, no fruits or vegetables at all. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, I first came across you online, and I was struck by how similar parts of our health story are. Um, Can you outline that story for us? Yeah, sure. Um, It started like most people in my childhood. Um, When I was very young, I was not healthy at all. I was, uh, it's quite interesting because you hear a lot about whether babies are breastfed or bottle fed and whether that makes a difference. Um, I think it probably does. I was bottle fed. Um, I think at the time it was a a pressure on mums, new mums to, to go for the bottle rather than the breast for some bizarre reason um and i always had um illnesses i had tonsillitis a lot as a child it doesn't sound like that's very serious but actually tonsillitis can be really um quite nasty and you get high fevers delirium um, all sorts of nasty things that go along with it and i had that for several years until i eventually had my tonsils taken out when i was 10. Um, but even up until that time, I was suffering already from some gut health issues. I constantly had constipation. Um, I was always having tummy aches. Uh, I just was not a well child. Um, I didn't like food, <laughs> really. Um, didn't enjoy eating apart from eggs. I liked eating boiled eggs, particularly. Uh, fortunately, because they're very nutritious. Um, and despite my mum's great efforts, and she was a great cook and tried to get us to have you know, things like liver and you know, homemade things, I just was a very difficult child to feed. I really did not enjoy eating. And of course, we also then had the influx of you know, cereals and, and all of that for breakfast. So we had very sugary um, breakfasts. We had you know, sugar puffs and um, golden nuggets oh my god <laughs> they were terrible um, but of course every kid loves them so we you know my mum thought that she was doing the right thing she was following the guidelines we ended up with low-fat things and whole grains and you know all the rest of it and um, although she did cook from scratch um, she did obviously try to follow the healthy guidelines so um, I think it's very difficult for for parents at that time and still is yeah for so, sure yeah, so that, um, that sort of carried on from my childhood into my teens, and I kept having really chronic uh, stomach pains. Um, I had various um, investigative um, procedures, so I had a barium meal 
procedure where you have to take drink a substance and it shows up when they do the scan. Um, I had an endoscopy, I had a laparoscopy, and they never could find anything. So they just kept saying, well, it looks like it's probably IBS type thing. You know, take some painkillers and off you go. So it was, it was never really dealt with properly. Nobody ever tested for any um, allergies or any um, intolerances. So I just kind of had to bumble along, really, and that just carried right on through to my adulthood. Um, when eventually I researched it myself, when I became a nutritionist, of course, I then was looking more into what um, uh, how, how different health things affected people. And it appeared to me that I probably had gluten intolerance. So I then decided to take out gluten. Um, and I should say before all this, when I left home at 17, I became a vegetarian. Um, and I was vegetarian for 27 years. Um, and of course I thought that I was doing the right thing for my health, as you always do. And I didn't eat a lot of junk. Um, I'm, I'm not prone to, I don't like fizzy drinks or things like that. So I was never drinking sodas or particularly having a lot of sweet stuff. But again, following the guidelines. So although I ate some dairy, it was very low fat. Um, I didn't really drink milk. So I drank soya milk of all things. Really wish I hadn't done that now. Um, and, you know, healthy whole grains and pasta and vegetables and fruits and, and all the rest of it. Um, and on the surface, you would think that my diet probably was uh, pretty good. And to all intents and purposes, if, you, if a nutritionist had looked at them and said, oh, yes, you're doing well, that's great. You know, I did eat eggs, so that was good still. Um, but I actually, in 1997, I lost my smell and taste. Um, and again, I went for some tests and they couldn't find anything wrong. There were no polyps, there was no swelling, there was, there was nothing that they could find. Um, so I was given some um, steroids, a steroid nasal spray, but I decided that I really didn't want to be taking that for the rest of my life. So I just learned to live with it really. Um, and that lasted for 20 years. Uh, and um, I mean, I'll touch on this in a minute. I believe it's, I still would have that if I hadn't changed my diet so radically. Um, but as I said, I, I changed to a paleo diet. Um, that was probably about seven years ago now. Um, and I did that because I realized that gluten was an issue and I wanted to go gluten-free, but I didn't want to go on a typical gluten-free, let's just buy some other processed rubbish foods <laughs> to replace it. So I'd done a lot of reading and a lot of research and I'd looked at the paleo diet and I thought, well, I'll do this, but I did it as a vegetarian. And I soon realized that it's actually really hard to do it as a vegetarian because suddenly a lot of your um, proteins, you know, the beans, because you don't eat legumes, all of that kind of thing are out of your diet. So I was very tired. Um, I didn't have much energy and I knew that I had to do something probably quite radical. And so I did. I thought about it and thought, well, I will, I will try putting in uh, chicken and fish and see how that that does and I can always go back if you know if it doesn't suit me I don't like it so I did slowly I, I gradually added um, chicken and fish and then um, some red meats and sort of progressed from there and as soon as I did my energy levels just were so much better um, and I had a brief period during that time of about six weeks of intermittent smell and taste returning which I got very excited about 
as you would <laughs> after 20 years. Uh, but it didn't last, it went. And I, and I just could not understand what was going on because I thought, well, when it came back, I thought, wow, I've cracked it. It's, you know, it's obviously I needed the meat or you know, some nutritional deficiency, but it didn't stay. And I tried all sorts of things. And eventually I'd given up um, alcohol anyway, because it, I, I was finding that I was getting headaches and my hands and sinuses were swelling. And I thought, well, it's probably not helping. Um, and it got to the point when I just wasn't enjoying it. So I, I didn't um, drink anymore. Um, then I went very low carb and then I went to keto. And then two years ago, I decided to try carnivore. And it was really just as a, and for interest really, because I'd, um, I've been, you know, you go on this food journey, you know, a lot of people do that. And it, and it is a journey because you don't generally go from traditional eating to a sudden <laughs> massive change like carnivore. It's generally a journey. Um, and for me, it definitely was. And I was doing a lot of research through my nutritional work, um, looking at the likes of Stefansson in the Arctic, um, Blake Donaldson, who'd written um, Strong Medicine, talking about healing people through a, a um, meat-only diet, um, Dr. Salisbury. You know, there were so many people in the past that had had a lot of success. And I, I just thought, wow, this is really interesting because having been someone that, first of all, was a vegetarian, and secondly, even when I was paleo, I had a lot of vegetables on my plate. You know, I was doing fermented, I was making kimchi, I was, you know, doing loads of things. And there were always lots of veg. And I couldn't really imagine life without vegetables on my plate, although I wasn't really eating fruit by that point. I just couldn't imagine, you know, life without veg. So I just said to my husband, right, I'm going to try this for a month because I'm just fascinated to see what it's like. And within three weeks, my smell and taste came back. But I didn't get excited because I'd been down that road before. Um, and I just thought, mm, okay, this is interesting. And I just carried on and I found that I wasn't missing the vegetables at all. I didn't miss it. And I was really enjoying the food. Um, and you know, fast forward two years and here I am and I still can smell and taste and it hasn't gone away at all. Uh, I have my theories as to why, um, and what happened with that which we can go into if you want. Um, and I absolutely love the way that I eat. It's so simple, it's so freeing. Um, it's, I think, very sustainable. I think it's really healthy and I feel great. So that's kind of my story in a quite a long, big nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's really interesting to hear. Um, so we've had a couple of carnivores on and uh, the... It's, it's often about health, but it is often about sustainability too. And I think we should pick up on that later. But going back to the very start, because there's a lot of really interesting points to talk about. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I wasn't anticipating talking about, but you mentioned it, that's a really kind of sensitive subject, is about uh, bottle or breastfed for children. And yes. um, it's something that I've commented on online before, just on a, my personal social media accounts, because... I'm genuinely concerned about the damage that can be done if um, if a child's breast, uh, sorry, bottle fed, uh, especially if they're bottle fed first and exclusively, and mm. um, that there can be uh, real and lasting damage that we don't truly understand at the moment. And the main accusation that I get back is that that's really not fair on new parents and new mothers, particularly because it's extremely, it can be extremely difficult to breastfeed 
and you're under a lot of pressure both from yourself and from health visitors um, to for the baby to put on weight and so it's a very sensitive subject and understandably and I wonder what you think about um, the health implications of bottle feeding and um, that whole issue really. Yeah I think you're right it's a really sensitive um, topic um, and it's such a shame because it's obviously you know in nature we are supposed to breastfeed our um, offspring you know that's what all animals do and that's what we should do and it's it's very interesting that that women do have such difficulties with it um, I mean yes it can be it can be painful initially when you first start to breastfeed I mean I breastfed I've had four children I breastfed mine um, which actually I think contributed to my nutritional deficiencies because as a as a vegetarian um, that wasn't getting enough nutrition um, and with my gut health issues and having my children close together, it depleted my body even more. But um, that's kind of an aside really. But I do think that it is, um, yeah, it's critical for health because what a baby gets from breast milk is a high fat, um, you know, uh, diet basically and it's when you compare that to bottle feeding which is very much uh, carbohydrate you're setting up a child for potential problems with carbohydrates for the future when you bottle feed them um, you know obviously you're you're not getting the colostrum you're not getting um, all the essential nutrients that you get when when you breastfeed particularly in the very early days so if baby doesn't get any of that right from the beginning which I didn't um, yes, I think, I think there are potential problems. I mean, obviously there's, there's all sorts of issues that go along with it with, you know, we don't know enough about gut health yet, but obviously a vaginal birth followed by breastfeeding, you're going to get the mother's, um, biome and bacteria traveling through for the baby. And, and that's obviously a healthy thing. Um, when you don't have those things, when you have a cesarean, which my twins were born by cesarean, and the first thing that's touching them is, you know, the, the doctor, the doctor's gloves and hands and the towels and, you know, you're not, it's not nothing to do with the mother's um, microbiome. And so that again can be quite detrimental. And if you're then not, not even breastfeeding on top of that, I think that can have an impact. Um, that being said, I think it's, it is very difficult and, and mothers do feel under pressure if they're struggling. And I, I just don't think that there's enough help out there well, there certainly didn't used to be enough help out there to really encourage mums and help them through that, that first, um, you know, early stages of trying to get to grips with it. Um, and I know that years ago, when I was born, there definitely was a big push for bottle feeding. And that came from um, the big companies, you know, no surprise there. I mean, Nick Mailer has got a brilliant um, video, actually, a, a presentation that he gave, uh, which outlines all of the issues with uh, bottle feeding. And it's, it's a really good presentation, if anyone wants to watch that on YouTube. Um, he, he really went into depth about how the, um, you know, the formula companies were pushing, particularly in um, third world countries, to get women to stop breastfeeding and start bottle feeding. I mean, how ridiculous is that? Yeah, it's cynical. It's something that should be so natural. And the fact that it isn't, and it's hard, we've got to, you know, wonder about that, I think. You know, why is it hard for people? Yeah, for sure. And I'll, I'll link to Nick Mailer's video mm. in the show notes. So he's, he's been on it. The episode's not been released yet, but um, 
that's something we didn't talk about, but I, I didn't realize he had a video on that. He's always very articulate and funny. Yes, he is. He is. And, and it's a very, very good, um, good presentation. Yeah, yeah, I think you make really good points. And it's, um, it's not my intention to cast aspersions on the difficulties that new mothers go through. Um, no, absolutely. It's just, it's, it's so difficult. And uh, yeah, I think a lot is unknown as well. Um, and it's, it's a point that only dawned on me when I started looking into this. And I think it might have been um, Peter from the blog Hyperlipid who was talking about bottle feeding uh, infants and the damage that it could potentially do. Um, I'll try and find that post as well and, and link to it. But um, yeah, it, uh, it, was, it, it was only then that I kind of thought about the fact that like you said, if you're born C-section, then you, well, I mean, all babies are born sterile. So you come out, you, mm-hmm. I, think, I think that's true to say you come out sterile and then, so you're like a, a kind of blank slate. And so whatever touch first goes into your mouth and down your gullet and into your stomach. And that's your microbiome going down. It is. And, and, you know, babies that go through the birth canal do have all of that, you know, they're, they're pass it with their face and you know yeah. everything um touches them so from their mother's microbiome they they are inoculated with that which is great i know that they are um some places are pushing to do a, a vaginal swab um yeah. so that babies section are then swabbed how much that will help i don't know but i guess it's better than nothing yes um i guess if you have to do a c-section for safety or for other reasons um then you have to do it. Yeah. And oh, absolutely. Yeah. In, in the dim and distant past, I expect that the downside, or sorry, I suppose the the yeah the the downside of um, everything being quote unquote natural is that child mortality was like fifty percent or something. Exactly. So nowadays yes. you can you can save children, but mm-hmm. they they might be uh, they might need uh, extra help, and they might need um, suboptimal. Uh, mm-hmm. interventions that nonetheless save their lives and um, allow them to carry on which obviously you you want absolutely um, yeah um so you mentioned the role of antibiotics potentially and uh, where things went wrong yes. what do you think what role do you think that played and do you ever wonder if you hadn't had those an- antibiotics how things might have been different with your health oh very much so yeah i i really do think um they have such a damaging effect. I mean, obviously, people take antibiotics for a reason. And I'm not, I'm not uh, saying nobody should ever take antibiotics. I mean, sometimes we absolutely need them. But I had such a lot over my young life um, that I actually, my baby teeth, when they fell out, my second teeth grew um, on the bottom. I had two dots on the um, front of my bottom two front teeth. Uh, two round orange dots and I was uh, when we went to my dentist he explained that you get that from um, exposure to antibiotics which is really interesting Um, it faded they faded over over the years but they were very prominent when I was young and you think wow if that can have an effect on your teeth growing what else is going on Um, and of course I didn't think about that at the time but it's so obvious to me now that um, you know the, the mouth um, is the gateway 
to the rest of your body, to the rest of, you know, down through the GI tract and, um, and into your um, stomach and intestines and the bowel. And, you know, that is how our health, um, you know, you can tell if you have bad oral health, you're likely to have bad intestinal health um, and gut permeability. And for me, if, you know, if only I'd known that then. <laughs> um, but yeah, definitely, I think that uh, you're, you're, by its very nature, antibiotics are killing um, bacteria in your intestines because that's what they're intended to do. And of course, in those days, nobody was taking any probiotics or trying to feed you with um, fermented foods or anything to try and help the growth of good bacteria. So it's no wonder that I then was developing what I now understand to be gut permeability, you know, intestinal permeability from a very young age. Um, and that would then account for my gluten intolerance and indeed my dairy intolerance, which I didn't really realize I had until um, really I was really probably carnival. I, I thought there might be something when I was paleo, but I kept dairy in. But when I was uh, went to carnival, it became very, very obvious that dairy was an issue for me. Um, I can't take pasteurized dairy, it gives me really bad stomach pains. And although I can take raw dairy, it doesn't give me stomach pains, but it does start to dim my smell and taste, interestingly. Um, so obviously it does affect my gut permeability. It's, you know, it's obviously uh, affecting the mucus layer and it's uh, creating problems. So yeah, I think antibiotics do play an enormous role in our health. And if we are taking a lot of them, then, you know, I, I just don't think that's a good, a good thing. Mm -hmm. I guess it's a, a similar thing to the, the kind of medical interventions we were talking about before, where if you need them because you've got a, a threat, a threatening infection, then you need mm. them. And mm, I would, exactly. I, would, I would take them tomorrow if that happened. Exactly. You know, if, I, if I, if I cut myself from garden shears or something and it was, it was, well, really this is it. yeah. And it's, so, you know, it's there, it's a tool, but it has been overused in the past. And I think doctors are getting more wise to it. They're, they're not uh, handing them out like sweeties so much anymore. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the, I mean, the, the sense of smell thing is amazing because that was really the one where I was like, when we were chatting online a while ago, and um, it was because I'd read that in your story and I'd uh, got in touch because I'd not heard of anyone else who'd gone through that. and so. Uh, the bit of background from my side is that my gran had lost her sense of smell I think when she was quite young like in her 30s or early 40s and she'd been a smoker and I used to smoke I used to smoke quite heavily and in 2014 I quit and then maybe four or five months after I quit I lost a good chunk of my sense of smell and taste it just one day up and vanished wow. and um, I'd had a series of autoimmune problems over the years and I didn't I, at that point I hadn't really put it all together um, I just knew that I'd had really bad health problems and it wasn't until I'd um, kind of gone paleo then low carb and then um, seen my weight uh, drop to a, a really healthy level and level off and my, uh, my uh, mental health issues and other health issues just sort of evaporate that I thought, well, maybe I can dare to dream here and that 
somehow if I find the right combination and my sense of smell and taste will fully return. And so I kind of followed the same path as you and ended up kind of only eating pretty much meat, fish, eggs, some, some veg, um, and the occasional, um, the occasional bit of dairy. And I thought, well, what will happen? What would happen if I cut out dairy completely, including butter, you know, and cream and everything and, um, nightshades because they're quite often implicated in autoimmune problems and I've had a history of autoimmune problems. So, uh, tomatoes, aubergines, um, I wouldn't be having white potatoes anyway, but those things. And so I did, and I was very strict about it. And then hey presto, a few weeks later, my um, sense of smell and taste, uh, just the, the volume just started to come up uh, quite, in, quite intensely on them mm. in a way that couldn't be mistaken for anything else. Mm. And since then, I've, I've kind of gone in and out of eating um, bits of dairy here and there, some, some uh, fruit and veg that occasionally that might interfere with all that because I, I don't really mind. I just, I know that I can, I can uh, go strict and get mm, it back again. again. Mm. I just enjoy the variety sometimes and the, the, the downsides aren't, aren't too great. Um, but I just thought that was fascinating. I mean, do you have, I, I, I've, I've read a fair bit about some of my other autoimmune problems there. I mean, a lot of autoimmune problems are miss are a mystery to modern medicine, which is why they uh, are so poor at treating them. You know, they usually end mm -hmm. up, yeah, they end up just sort of um, covering them with symptom covering drugs or ending up doing surgeries like they did for my um, achalasia where my food pipe tightened up to the point where mm -hmm. I couldn't swallow anything properly and I lost loads of weight and I was wasting away and um, oh yeah, they had to put a balloon down there. So uh, I had a couple of those operations, but um, besides that, the autoimmune problems aren't, aren't very well understood or addressed. Um, do you have an insight into what the sense of smell and taste mechanism is, or are you just happy that it's cleared up? Um, no, I, I kind of do. Um, interestingly, when I initially had uh, the smell and taste loss, um, I occasionally got um, a, like a temporary, like an hour or two um, of smell and taste whenever I had a cold which is kind of the opposite for most people because their smell and taste goes down a bit. But yeah. for me, and I didn't have colds very often, but if I did, I could smell and taste for a little bit and it would just be like for a couple of hours and you'd be like, oh, wow, this is amazing. I'd go around smelling everything, smelling like my, my mm -hmm. children. And, <laughs> you know. um, and anyway, about 10 years after my initial diagnosis, um, I, I'd been living abroad and I came back to live in Scotland and... Um, I was just going for a routine um, check at the doctor's and she happened to look through my notes and said, oh, are you, you still having this issue with this smell of taste? I said, yeah. And she said, well, it's been 10 years. Shall we put you through for another examination? Um, and I said, yeah, okay, might as well. So I went and the um, consultant, again, couldn't find anything except he said that I had a very, very dry nasal passage. And he said, you need to have mucus to be able to smell and taste. Um, and I, and it was true. I never had to blow my nose. I mean, very rarely had colds anyway. Um, and obviously then when I could smell and taste those brief times, I had mucus because I'd had a cold. Um, so that was quite interesting. He did say, 
to try maybe doing a saline solution. But the problem with that is it's one, it's not mucus and it doesn't stay up your nose anyway. So it really didn't do anything. So I quickly sort of gave up on that. But um, what I found was that obviously with, with intestinal permeability, you have a problem with the mucus in your stomach lining in the first place. And that means that, you know, there's, there's a very thin mucus layer, which means that bacteria can make, potentially get through. You've got breakages in the gut lining. So your, your mucus isn't healthy for a start in your gut anyway. And that's going to have an effect on a lot of cells in the body. And I've, I've since spoken to um, Shafir Clemens, actually, um, since mm -hmm. becoming carnivore. And um, we've met a couple of times. And, you know, she was saying as well, once, once your intestinal permeability heals, then obviously the gut mucus heals, then all the other cells in the body can start to heal, which makes obviously complete sense. Um, and I know that in their work, they tend to see um, their patients... Uh, having a, a resolution in their gut permeability within three weeks, which is interesting because that's exactly how long it took when I turned carnivore. I didn't know at the time that that had any relevance. But I think for me, I think what happened was having had poor health as a child and obviously gut permeability with all sorts of issues going on, I then became vegetarian. But over those years, um, I think I wasn't absorbing nutrients very well because of the gut permeability, because of all sorts of things going on, um, which meant that within just a few years of vegetarianism, it probably was only about three or four years, was when I lost my smell and taste. Um, and then I had my children very close together. So, of course, that depletes your nutrients as well. You know, you're, you're, that's taking from your body stores all the time. Um, and if you're not absorbing properly and you've got gut health issues then clearly there's going to be deficiencies and, and issues going on and it was only when my intestinal permeability finally healed and that was with taking finally taking out the plants because I'd done everything else and it was that final step of removing plants that made the difference and um, you know it's just so interesting I still was eating dairy at that time so I did still um, you know, I could still smell and taste the dairy. It's just that I then was getting some severe abdominal pains and, um, you know, and, and then when I took it out, my sense of smell and taste got even more pronounced. And interestingly, it's even more pronounced since the last couple, about six months, I've been much more of a keto carnivore. So I'm much more in the range of being in ketosis all the time and very much in therapeutic ketosis. So trying to reach quite a high level of ketones. And that has also impacted it much, you know, I, I'm smelling and tasting much better uh, with that as well. I, I, noticed, I noticed sort of an elevation once that kicked in as well, which has been quite interesting, just sort of as an experiment, really. But uh, for sure, I think it's an unusual thing. I haven't heard, I mean, obviously, um, there's yourself, I haven't heard of any other people who have who've had that. And I think what happens with autoimmune is that everybody's affected in such a different way. You know, mm. it's very, very interesting how it, how it will um, attack your body systems in, in different ways. Um, and who knew? I mean, I, I, I didn't even go into doing carnivore thinking about my smell and taste. It wasn't even registering in my brain that, that taking out plants would make any difference to that. Um, so it was a real, you know, nice benefit <laughs> from an experiment that I was just going to do for a month just to see what it was like. Um, so, yeah, who knew? <laughs> Amazing. <laughs>
And have you have you tried reintroducing any plants for any reason just to, to see what happens? You know what, I haven't. Um, and I, a, a couple of people have asked me that. And two reasons really. I think having done the, the dairy experiment, I do know that obviously I am susceptible to gut permeability. So if, if, thing, if, I am, if it's gonna happen, it will happen and it'll probably happen quite quickly. Um, and I don't miss it enough to want to put anything back in. You know, I'm, I really do enjoy the way that I eat. And because I can smell and taste, I really savor my, my food. And um, I just, I guess I'm nervous. I still, <laughs> it's really interesting. In the very beginning, um, I used to smell like my toothpaste and just to, in the morning and in the evening, just to check. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I could still, you know, wake up in the morning, and go, oh yeah, I can still smell, that's good. And I still find myself doing that kind of thing mm. because I still can't quite believe it. Because 20 years is a long time to mm -hmm. not smell and taste. And I, there's still something there that doesn't quite believe it's going to stay. Um, so, yeah, why would I want to mess with that, really? And especially if I wasn't happy with the way I ate, maybe I would try. But I don't crave anything else. I just, I'm just not interested in, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't interest me at all. My husband eats vegetables and fruits, and, and so we have it in the house. But it doesn't interest me at all. So, no. I asked the same question of Amber O'Hearn, um, who noticed that her bipolar went away um, after having changed the way she ate and turned into a carnivore. Um, I, uh, I, I can totally appreciate her response, which was that, you know, she wouldn't want to risk bringing that back mm -hmm. um, just for the sake of a, an experiment. Exactly. That's how I feel. Uh, why would I, just for the sake of a bit of broccoli or something, I know it sounds a bit crazy to people. <laughs> oh, it's just a bit of broccoli. But why would I want to? Because I don't want to go back down that road. I really don't. And to some people, it's, you know, loss of smell and taste doesn't sound that serious. And it's not compared to so many other problems. You know, I, I wasn't blind. I wasn't deaf. I, I wasn't depressed. You know, I, I didn't have a really seriously debilitating thing. But at the end of the day, it still affects your life. You know, I, I couldn't smell my babies, my children, when, you know, that baby smell, I, I couldn't smell any of, of that after my, it was when my twins were six months old that, um, that my smell and taste went. And, you know, you miss that kind of thing. You can't smell. I've, I've, I've got the amount of times that I've left something cooking on the stove and forgotten that it's cooking because I couldn't smell it and burnt the bottom of a pan because I couldn't smell it. You know, danger and um, health and safety and, and just and pleasant things, things that give you memories. You know, you can smell something that brings back something in your childhood. You know, those kinds of things. Yes, you get used to it. And yes, you get used to eating food and, and things like texture becomes very important. You know, I, my ex-husband used to say, well, why, you know, I don't understand why you want to eat something spicy or something flavorful if you can't taste it. And, and that's because something was happening in my mouth that was interesting. Even though I couldn't tell you what the flavor was, something interesting was happening with that food rather than just eating bland foods all the time. Um, so you do get used to it, but the fact is that it's not the same. You know, when you can suddenly appreciate the smells, you know, my, my husband's just been cutting the grass today and that, that lovely fresh cut grass smell, it's so nice. And, you know, you, you don't appreciate that until it's gone. I guess it's the same with anything. 
And so, yeah, for me, it's just not worth just that, you know, having a bit of greenery on my plate. Why? Why would I want that? I just don't want to risk it. Um, I, and I'm fearful. Yeah, I'm fearful that it would go and not come back. And I, I think, obviously, I've, I realize nothing's actually broken. And, you know, I now have a healthy gut and that um, permeability is healed. And I've got very good mucus lining. Um, but it does make you worry. Of course it does. Um, and you, you just don't want to, to go back down that road, I suppose. Yeah, it's totally understandable. I mean, for the sake of proving doubters wrong, I mean, I think... Yeah, I mean, it's a bit like, why would I eat a, some wheat just to give myself stomach pain, just, <laughs> yeah. just to prove I have gluten intolerance? No, I don't want to do that, because I know that I do get that, <laughs> but I don't want to do it just to prove it to somebody. So I guess it's the same thing. And yes, I, to be honest, if people don't want to believe it and they don't want to, it doesn't matter to me because I'm, it's what's important to me. And I know, I know how it's affected me and I know how, how healthy and how good I feel. And that's the most important thing at the end of the day. Yeah, for sure. I see a lot of people at the stage of finding they have a problem with gluten and, um, they accept that and then spend lots of time eating gluten-free junk food. And to me, this is because the negative feedback from junk food is usually much milder compared to the negative feedback from eating gluten for people who have a problem with it. Mm -hmm. And it's actually not for me. Uh, I had dreadful heartburn and I couldn't um, sleep flat for years. Mm. And if I have sugar or starchy carbs, then it comes back. Couple other things do it as well, but basically, it changed my life because I could sleep all night long flat for the first time in years. It was amazing mm. um, when I went low carb, and so I've got that feedback, and so I just don't touch it. I don't, yeah. don't touch junk food at all. But a lot of people will will never realize how much better they could feel if they cut out junk food entirely. I mean, why do you think that it's that that it's really even suggested to people? I think it's because there's this intrinsic feeling of missing out. And I think, sadly, um, this is part of what our society has now, is that, that it's so expected that when you go to an event or you, um, you know, you're at a party or you're expected to join in. And if you don't join in, you're a killjoy. If you don't join in, you're a party pooper. Or, you know, one thing, one bit's not going to hurt you and all this kind of pressure. You know, I, I think with food, we have a very different attitude than we would for alcohol or smoking, for example. I mean, if you, if you were with an alcoholic, you wouldn't say, oh, go on, one drink, it's not going to hurt you. And same with smoking, you're not going to force or push smoking onto somebody who doesn't smoke but we feel it's okay to do that with food for whatever reason we you know we do have food pushers um people that will try and get you to have a little bit of dessert or a little bit of this and and i think that the reason that people do the gluten-free stuff is to be able to stay within that realm of being able to participate and feel normal where actually it's interesting because i feel that my diet is normal. I feel that my diet is a very normal human appropriate diet. And that, you know, the, the typical kind of way that, that we are eating in society is very abnormal. But of course, it's not viewed that way. I'm viewed as being the abnormal one. Um, and yet, when you look at the way that 
we're eating as humans um, generally in the general population, it is so far removed from what we should be putting in our bodies. But we've, we've just made it normal. And I think that when people come away because they have to, because of something like gluten, they are struggling to find something that makes them feel normal and part of the, the crowd. And I think that's, that seems to be the issue. Um, and I think if only we could make it more acceptable, that actually um, stepping right back from all that processed food. I mean, lots of foods are processed, of course. You know, you just, you know, we, we process things every single day. Um, generally, when you cook, you're sort of processing. But when we're talking about ultra-processed foods, um, you know, I think if we can help people to step away from that and to see that as actually that's not a normal thing to be doing, um, it might help people to um, not feel they have to replace something with something else. I mean, that's what, you know, when I was looking initially at gluten-free products in the shops, I was just horrified. And I thought, I, I don't want to replace something with something else that sounds just as dubious. Why do I need to eat this? And so I just made the decision that I wasn't going to go down that route and I was going to find something. And that's really what led me to the whole paleo thing, really. Um, I wanted to do it naturally. I wanted to do it in a much more um, whole foods, real foods, and as far from the ultra-processed foods as possible. Um, but, I, but I do think that's why people struggle. I really do. And there's not enough help out there because you know, a lot of people feel um, pressured and I think that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a, a good perspective, an interesting perspective. I, I don't think I've heard that emphasis so much that it's almost like a fear of missing out or, or, a, or a, a desire to feel, still feel normal. I think I've personally got a slightly perverse uh, uh, drive to be on the outside sometimes. And I quite well, like I think I do too. And I, I think that's why I find it easy. I really don't care what other people think. I really, <laughs> uh, I mean, it's not, I don't care, but you know, I, I don't care to the point that I'm going to change my nutritional um, uh, way of, you know, my way of eating to, to please somebody else. Why would I want to do that? They're not doing it for me. Do you know what I mean? I, I mean, it's, it's, it's such a personal thing. Food is very, communal we we have a community feeling when we you know we share food and and we eat together and i i get that but that's still very possible to do that when you're eating something very different from from your partner or from your family if you can engage with them to support you um then it shouldn't be an issue you know they should be happy that you your health has improved and that should be number one always not oh i'm upset because you didn't eat the cake that i made you know, and, and I think, yeah, I, I, I have no problem being an outlier there, but I know a lot of people struggle with that. And I, I do understand that it's difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the same. I, I, I sympathize with people who, who don't have the, um, the, the stubbornness that you, that you and I share. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Do you, um, do you supplement with anything at all? No, I don't. I used to. I used to take, and this is when I was vegetarian and, and paleo, actually. Um, I used to supplement through the roof. <laughs> so many drawer of supplements. Um, but actually, I, I don't take any now because I, I feel that I, I really don't need to. Um, I really feel that I'm getting everything that I need and, and that everything is being absorbed properly. Um, I, I think I've become very sceptical about supplements anyway. Um, I'm not sure that that people absorb them 
terribly well. Um, I worry about the other things that are in them. And I think, it, you know, you sh we should really be trying to get what we can get from real food. Mm. Yeah, I, I really like the logic that we evolved over a few million years eating things that were in our environment and those environments are varied and um i mean you know most of the time would have been in africa that that evolution but more recently they would have been more varied mm. and um therefore we it stands to reason that we can get everything we need to thrive from um a diet of foods that come from the natural environment like that and it might even stand to reason that we can only thrive properly if we're eating like that. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't necessarily mean that there might be a place for supplementation in certain cases or for eating foods that you, you wouldn't identify as coming from the natural environment and still thriving. But I think you're on safe ground if that is what you're doing. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I mean, certainly there's, there's situations, you know, for example, if you're a vegan, you absolutely would need to supplement. Um, but yes, I think if you're eating um, a very varied diet that is, uh, that comprises a lot of animal foods um, and, and, you know, local in season fruit and vegetables, um, I think that that is I mean, it's difficult because I think we, we do have a problem with the soils now. And so, you know, the nutrients in, in fruit and vegetables are not as good as they used to be. And of course, if you're buying year round things that are being shipped and traveled, you know, these things are being grown to be sweeter and bigger. And the nutrient, nutrient profile is very different from how it used to be. And, um, and actually, it's probably not providing the same nutrients. We're getting a lot more sugars from it than we used to. Um, so yes, I think from that sustainability point of view, eating locally and eating um, what's in your environment at the time is, is really important. Uh, and I think that's the way that we're going to be able to help our planet um, rather than shipping foods all over the world um, year long that actually we don't need to be eating year long. You know, we, we shouldn't be eating a whole load of fruits in winter and um, you know, when they're, they're actually not in season. This is why we've got such a problem with um, obesity and diabetes and things like that, is that we're eating all the time as if it's um, stocking up for winter. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're not stocking up for winter anymore because we can get the food all the time. And uh, I think this is where we, we've kind of lost the, the big picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you, um, you're a nutritionist and you, you've got uh, clients who ask you about what they should eat. Do you um, suggest that they eat carnivore or do you give them a range of options? No, I, I give them a whole range because people, I mean, everybody's different and everybody's coming at it from a completely different uh, point of view and from a different health standpoint. And I certainly wouldn't um, push the way that I eat on everybody. Um, although I, I feel it works for me and I feel that it could work for a lot of people. I mean, some people absolutely would not be ready for it um, or interested in that. And I take every single client individually and, and look at what their issues are. And when we work through it together and it really is, um, you know, I can advise and suggest what I think they should do. If I feel that they've got some intolerances, then I'll suggest that they maybe remove something for a period of time. Um, but I work with them where they're at because that's the only thing you can do with people because you you don't want to be pushing something down somebody's throat and um, making them do something that they're not ready for uh and and at the end of the day they won't 
they're not going to adhere to it anyway. It has to be it has to be something that they are willing to do, that they want to do, that they can see is going to be beneficial for them um, for it to start working. And I can obviously um, offer my advice, uh, but no, I no one size fits all. I really do work with each client individually. That makes sense. Um, you, you advocate um, for a carnivore um, for yourself and for others who might need it. And you particularly emphasize about uh, quality of meat and that it should be grass-fed and wild-caught where possible, which is obviously mm. more expensive um, most mm, of the time yeah. um, compared to a, a sort of conventionally raised equivalent. So what would, what, what would your advice be to someone who doesn't have that much money and, but could potentially benefit from changing how they eat? Well, I basically tell them not to worry about the um, trying to go for, you know, I, I basically say take what you can afford um, because, yes, I think it is particularly with things like pork, for example, I think it is much better to get pork that has been organically free range reared. But, you know, if, if it's going to be a question of somebody can't afford to do it then I would say you, you get the best that you can or maybe then you don't have pork but you would have beef and lamb for example because they tend to be especially in the UK um, and especially up here in Scotland you know they're out on the grass you know I look out my window and there's cows and sheep all over the place you know they're outside they're eating what they should naturally eat so you're probably going to be better off if you stuck to things like beef and lamb so I would really work with people to see what what they can afford um, and how best they can go about it because nobody wants to feel stressed that they're not getting the best thing and you know the whole organic thing because it's really expensive I totally get that and not everybody can afford that so I think it's just doing the best that you can do looking at the best options you know making sure that if you um, for example if you're looking at fish you don't really want to go down the road of farmed fish because that can be really quite nasty so maybe you look at a different type of fish or you maybe look at sardines that you're going to get in a tin or you know there's lots of different ways that you can go about about things making sure that you can try and get some quality eggs for example um, because they are so nutritious so supplement with eggs more than you would with with something else and make sure you try and get quality eggs so there's always ways around it i think um it's, it's just going to add stress to somebody who's already stressed with their health if you're going to try and browbeat them into into buying um you know the, the top of the range meat so I, I totally get that i mean if if you can afford it i think it's great because i i really think if we can support the the small farms the more that we can support the small farms the cheaper it will become because more people will be buying it um it's one of those um you know vicious circles i suppose but i i do think that trying to support um local and um and good farming practices is really important yeah me too um so you've, you've you've talked a lot about the microbiome and you've started looking into it a bit in terms of training i i think it's early days for that science mm. um and i like the phrase that's going around that the uh that healthy microbiome is the microbiome of a healthy person <laughs> i totally yeah. agree with that yeah Trying to identify individual strains and what they mean and how they're yeah. affected by different foods and the interactions of them is is infinitely uh, difficult so what, what what have you learned so far well i started a gut practitioner course a couple of years ago actually and i've kind of come to a bit of a stalemate on it because of that very reason really i think 
that it's there's so little that we know that to definitively say x y z about this strain that strain and you know what have you and this is the way to a healthy gut biome and if you eat, eat like this you're going to be then I, I i don't buy that and i and so i kind of have pulled away a bit and because i've struggled with that a little bit because i totally agree that a healthy bi biome is that of a healthy person and that can be different things there's no one healthy gut biome fits all you know i and i tested that myself um with um i after six months of being carnivore i thought well i i'm gonna see what my gut biome's doing just because uh i've changed it and and to all intents and purposes somebody would would probably say that my gut biome would have been less diverse and you know not so good and uh and actually it came back saying it was in the 87th percentile and i had a really gut healthy gut um profile and you know it was and yeah, I feel great. So that didn't surprise me. I think if I'd I'd done my gut microbiome years ago, I think it would have come back with all sorts of goodness knows what. Maybe it wouldn't. I don't know. This is the thing. We don't know. It's so early in its infancy to, to really say. Um, and I think that frustrates me that since... Since this has become more of an awareness, there's all these books now jumping on the bandwagon of eat this to have a gut healthy microbiome. And I think, well, actually, maybe not. How do you know? You don't know. Um, and I think if you are eating properly, you're eating well, you are cutting out ultra processed foods, you are cutting out sugars, you are eating whole foods, you are eating, um, you know, in a really healthy way, then you're likely to have a good microbiome. Biome, and it would be different from somebody else's that is equally, you know, somebody that's a carnivore that's that's healthy. Um, you know, I think it's it's just too soon to to suggest um, one thing or another. I think it's fascinating. I really think it's fascinating, and I'm sure it has a big impact. But it seems very obvious that if you are your bite, your microbiome changes very quickly in response to what you eat. So if you are eating a lot of vegetation and a lot of fiber, then you're going to have the microbiome that has to break that down. You just are. And if you're not, then you don't need that microbiome. So it won't be the same and, and it will change. So that just is, is common sense to me that it's going to change. It doesn't mean that it's less healthy. It just means that it's different. You know, it's responding to what you're eating. Yeah. Yeah. That's my take on it too. Um, we, we spoke just before we started recording about illnesses you can't see. Um, mm. I guess it would be things like certain autoimmune conditions, mental health conditions. Um, there's a, somewhat of an issue with researchers or doctors typically who maybe have never been unhealthy in um, with an illness that you can't see. And what happened with me was I went back to my doctor having um, been pestering her for years about problems with mental health and weight and heartburn and pain, really severe stomach pain and just the list goes on. Nothing had worked and I changed the way I ate and I came back to tell her that I was completely healed of the lot. And I think her response was so muted I was disappointed at first. I was still at that stage um, 
really put a lot of a lot more faith in uh the opinion of my doctor mm. and that which isn't to say that i wouldn't go to a doctor if i was unwell of course i would it's just that in my experience with the illnesses that i've had i either haven't felt like i've um, found much sympathy or when i have the solutions were poor and when i found one i thought they would be over the moon that they'd find they, they could add another tool to their arsenal and it was like the the reaction made me feel like she that i probably didn't have much of a, a problem in the first place or right. that mm. the improvement was not as big as i was saying it was mm-hmm. and i think that's uh i can understand the attitude but i think it's a real problem because it means that when um when liable witnesses say they tell their experience they're often not listened to and so uh people don't try that as a potential solution i mean what do you think about these sort of illnesses you can't see and um people's attitude to them yeah i well i totally agree i think it's 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 always very difficult with particularly with mental health i think because people can't see it unless it's very obvious that somebody is suicidal and they're you know in a, in a real black hole um and people that live with people um with those situations obviously it's extremely difficult um but yes when you've got you know gut health issues like i had like you had when you can't smell or taste or when you've got a a, a bad back you know things that you can't see if you've got a broken arm it's in a cast everybody's very sympathetic oh dear that must be terrible how sore and you know whatever else um but it's very difficult to be sympathetic to somebody when you can't actually see what's wrong with them and on the surface they might appear to be looking very healthy um you know i it's interesting because i have a a client actually he has uh, type 2 diabetes and um he uh, has got various things going on with his health, quite severe. And he's often at the doctors and he said it can be quite frustrating because he can be having a really bad time um, and his glucose levels are shooting up and he's feeling really you know, unwell. And he'll go into the doctor's surgery and they'll say, oh, you're looking well. <laughs> it's mm. like, well, I'm really not feeling well. Um, and you know, I think it is very difficult when you do have issues that are going on. People are not necessarily sympathetic. And I think you're right. When you find a solution that is out of the box, particularly as far as doctors are concerned, generally speaking, unless they're very open-minded, they are not interested in how you did it because you didn't do it the way. And like you said, maybe you didn't really have that much of a problem in the first place. You know, I mean, I know when I had all the tests, and you're going in repeatedly because you're constantly having stomach pain. You're going in to the doctors. Generally, you've got an appointment after the, the fact that the pain is, you know, maybe dissipated a little bit. You know, if they were there in your living room when you're chronically on the floor, which I've been, you know, my husband's saying, what can I do to help? And I'm like, there's nothing you can do. There's, there's just, I've just got to go through this for a few hours before it will pass. You know, and he's feeling really... Um, unable to help you know if the doctor was there there and then they might actually be spurred to do something a bit more productive but they're not generally because by the time you get to see the doctor that actual initial 
agony has passed. So it doesn't look as bad as it did. And that's not to say that doctors aren't sympathetic, and they are, but they're busy and they've got lots of other people. And I think it's very difficult. I think uh, if you're not presenting with something very visible, then I think it is very difficult. And as I said, I think mental health issues are, are top of the list of that because it's very difficult a lot of the time for people to really, really understand what's going on. And I, I think it's amazing for people within the carnival space that um, you know, we're hearing about like Amber O'Hearn um, and uh, Brett Lloyd who have overcome incredible uh, mental health issues through taking out plants, of all things, taking out plants. Why that should be a problem for people to accept, I don't know, because you would think people would be quite happy. Wow, that's amazing that you've done that. But people come up against resistance. Why? Uh, you know, I don't really know because it, it goes against the norm, I suppose. And it seems, it seems so hard to believe because surely we've been told fruit and vegetables are so good for you. It can't possibly be something to do with that. Um, so, yeah, we're fighting against um, the... the paradigms that have been there for so long i suppose yeah i've got a lot of sympathy for doctors who um who don't have much time with each patient they've got to operate within a set of guidelines and rightly so you know i think there's only so far maverick that a doctor should be allowed to absolutely to yeah go because you're talking about people's uh, life and death mm. and it takes people like david unwin who take a a disease like type two diabetes, which has measurables. So mm. if you're trying to get the um, blood markers to a certain point, then you can use them as a, a, a measure. You mm -hmm. know, you can't really say with such accuracy, there isn't a 10 point scale of uh, depression that you can no. effectively measure. And no. so, you just have to take people's word for it. And so I have sympathy with doctors who, um, have, who, who maybe are a bit jaded and think they've seen it all and don't really take it on board. And it's amazing when you see people like David Unwin who started seeing people who had used low carb and adopted that himself. And now he's saving his practice 60 grand a year. And I know, he's just a such one. a lovely guy. What an amazing achievement. He's, he's made such a difference. It's, it's really good. Yeah. Hopefully we can have more doctors doing that. Hopefully an example. And I think they will. And I think it's, it's moving mm. in that direction for sure mm. because the results are there. And not only, I mean, the 60,000 a year figure is just in diabetes drugs. So never mind the fact that the people who have um, lost weight and... Uh, reverse their type 2 diabetes, uh, will almost certainly have far fewer knock-on health problems that will cost the NHS untold mm -hmm. amounts. You oh, know, the, yes. the bill for type 2 diabetes in the NHS is, um, is dreadful. Um, mm -hmm. They're going to avoid uh, limb amputations and um, oh, this is it. heart People disease. Blind and yeah, cardiovascular issues, heart attacks. I mean, it's yeah, unbelievable what they could, what they could save. Yeah, it's great. Um, you spoke about being a vegetarian for 27 years. Uh, what mo motivated you to get into vegetarianism and what, uh, what, was, it that, what was the turning point that specifically motiv motivated you to uh, start eating meat again? Um, well, I think when I was a vegetarian, I, I would have told you that I felt that I was naturally um, inclined to be one. I think that was because 
of, as I said before, I was, as a child, I just did not like food. I didn't like meat particularly. I liked chicken, but I didn't like any, I just didn't like the chewing factor and um, the taste, but I didn't really like vegetables either. So it's not like I was massively a a huge vegetable fan either. Um, I didn't really like food very much, but I felt that I naturally gravitated, I suppose, towards more of a vegetarian type um, lifestyle. Um, as I said, I kept in dairy, so I had cheeses and I had eggs. I didn't really drink milk. I, I drank soya milk, unfortunately. Um, but it was all the low-fat dairy, of course, following the, the, the guidelines, like a good girl. <laughs> and um, so I wasn't, wasn't actually getting very many of the nutrients that dairy had to offer anyway. Um, but I, I think I was heading that way naturally as I got older into my teens and once I then left home um I just gravitated to it I just felt that it was easier and it was more me and I I still had chicken initially when I left home um and then I actually had um I got food poisoning and I think it was from chicken on a pizza but I'm not quite sure I, I'm you know it wasn't very nice anyway I convinced myself it was the chicken on the pizza and I never had it again so um, I probably should have avoided the pizza and, and had chicken <laughs> in hindsight. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was really what, what tipped me over uh, completely to, to being vegetarian. And, uh, and so that's what I did. And I stuck, stuck to that for, for a very long time. And so it wasn't, and like a, it wasn't a, a sympathy with animals or... Well, I did have, yes, I did have that too. I was, um, I was very sympathetic towards um, not killing animals. Um, I, having said that, I was always very adamant or emphatic that should I ever have found myself in a situation in the middle of, you know, an apocalypse where <laughs> I needed to kill an animal, I need to, I would. I always said that. And I always said that I felt that people who did eat animals should be prepared to kill and gut and deal with it um, themselves. I kind of always felt that. Um, And I've always been massively uh, in favor of, you know, animal welfare and, um, and humane farming, which is why it's important to me now, obviously. Um, so yes, I, I did have the ethical reasons as well. I very much ha- thought it was a healthy thing to do. There's a lot of cancer in my family. Um, you know, you name the type of cancer, somebody in my family has had it. And I thought that I was doing the right thing and staving off, you know, um, the possibility of cancers. Um, I since have changed my point of view on that. Um, and so yeah, I thought it was a healthful thing. I thought it was an environmental thing. And uh, I, I think probably I was wrong on, on both those counts. And what changed me ultimately was the fact that, as I said, I had nailed what, I, what my stomach issue was, which was the gluten. And having taken that out and gone towards a paleo diet, trying to do that as a vegetarian was very difficult. And being a fitness instructor and a personal trainer, I'm very active. Uh, and I just was feeling tired and, you know, no energy. The pro- my protein levels had plummeted because I just wasn't getting enough protein. Uh, and I realized that 
you know, I kind of thought I should be feeling, I felt better with my stomach issues, but I wasn't feeling better overall. And I knew that I should be. And with all the research I'd done, I, it's, I knew that I should be feeling better. And I instinctively knew it was because I was missing that vital nutrient. And, and that really, I just thought, you know what, I'm going to have to make a big decision here. And, and so I, and I did, but I made it on the grounds that I would always endeavor to buy uh, humanely reared, um, the best that I could afford uh, meats. And, and that's what I've stuck to. Um, so that was important. Uh, and as I said, it was like night and day. Once I just put some um, chicken and fish in initially, my energy was just so much better. <laughs> it was incredible. Um, and that spoke volumes. I just thought, wow, this is, this is really interesting. Um, and, and yeah, and so I've just, I gradually started adding in some red meat and then, you know, before I, I knew it, I was eating pretty much everything. And then certainly as a carnivore, I eat nose to tail. I mean, I absolutely do eat everything. Uh, and I think again, that's a really important thing to do because if you're going to kill an animal, then it's very wasteful, in my opinion, to just choose your prime choice cuts and throw the rest away. That's not how we should be treating, you know, an animal that's given its life. And, and you know, why do we want to waste food? We, there's so many nutrients in so many different parts of the animal. We should be respecting that and respecting ourselves enough to, to eat it um, and use it. And I think that's really important. Yeah, me too. I agree completely. Um, what's your, your favorite, uh, sort of non-conventional cut to eat? Um, non-conventional. Well, I love, I've actually been eating quite a lot more raw, um, meats recently, and I really enjoy, um, raw steak and raw liver. Um, and again, I think definitely with the liver, it's really important to get good quality because there's definitely a difference in taste for sure. You know, a, a good quality raw liver is almost sweet. It's, it's really nice. Um, and I know lots of people won't believe me, but it is. Um, and I, one of my favorite um, cuts of meat is uh, short ribs, beef mm. short ribs. I love beef short ribs because they're so fatty. But um, interestingly, I prefer to eat them once I've cooked them and then they've gone cold. Interesting. Um, rather, yeah, rather than hot if i eat a lot of it hot it can make me feel quite sick and that's that's to do with the fat being hot and warm um and i believe that when you eat uh like any liquid oil um it can go straight it certainly goes straight through me so it's it's not i don't feel that it's good to have a, a, a liquid um oil uh, i much prefer to have it either a raw raw animal fat so raw suet or raw beef fat or um pork fat or to have cooked it and then cooled it because I think your body then has to digest it properly. Whereas if it's an oil, you're passing it. There's no digestion really needed. It goes straight through your system. Um, and it's a bit like people who take a lot of MCT oil or a lot of olive oil and find they get diarrhea. It's no surprise. It's because it's going straight through pretty much. Uh, and I think the same happens with animal fat. So I know that when I have, if I have a hot, um, then it, it makes a difference. And I can feel quite, you know, that I was not really agreeing with me, whereas I can eat it cold, no problem. Interesting. I found that rendered down fat can have that same problem with me. 
and yeah, and I think it's for the same reason, it's because it's been, um, it's, it's hot, particularly if you have it when it's hot. I'll try making some really fatty mince and letting it cool and then seeing if I've got a, an issue with it. That'll be interesting. Yeah, I think you'll find it will be much better. I have had clients that have had the same issue and I've told them to cook it, cool it and then eat it so that it's not hot liquid fat and it's made a big difference. Interesting. I also yeah. love short ribs very much. Oh, yeah. Short ribs, they're one of my favorites. I love, love them. And it's great because they are naturally kind of like a keto uh, ratio. They're really so fatty that they're pretty much an 80-20 um, ratio of fat to protein, which is great. Yeah, you mentioned that earlier that you've switched over kind of mm. specifically to uh, as ketogenic a ratio as you can find. So when you say 80-20, do you mean 80% by calories fat? Yes, yes. To 20% calories protein. Yes, yeah. So, so it's basically ribs. pretty much, yeah, short ribs. If I don't, if the meat itself doesn't have that ratio, I, I will add extra fat. So I'll tend to add extra raw fat, raw suet or something like that. Um, so, and I, I tend to do it, if you're looking at grams, it will be like a two to one um, by gram uh, ratio. So I can always kind of equalize it out and I eat I tend to eat uh, egg yolks rather than a whole egg sometimes I have a whole egg but I'm, again I'll have egg yolks more often than I have a whole egg um, and yeah I just I've just found that it is naturally much more satiating I tend to eat either two small meals or one main meal a day and that's all I need and I'm I'm really nice and full on that and you know I don't need it's interesting because when I first ate a carnivore diet I kind of did what a lot of people do which is just eat as much as you feel like eating and it's an interesting thing because I think when you are there's a difference between satiety and satiation I think when you are in the moment of eating especially with hot food because hot meat is really it's like it's like highly processed food in this in, this, in the sense that it's very palatable highly palatable you can smell it you can and of course I can now <laughs> smell it and taste it and it's hot and it's got that lovely texture and the whole all those processes are going on and you can eat and eat and eat quite a lot before you're you're then saying you're full whereas actually if you were to eat cold meat so you've cooked the same meat and you let it go cold or raw I find that I don't eat as much I can't eat as much if it's cold or if it's raw. Um, it's just that it, your body just has that natural stop sign be, way before um, it does with, with hot food. It's a really interesting thing. Mm. Um, and I think now that I've, I've now adopted the, the more keto approach, because it's, it's higher fat, I get much fuller much quicker. So I don't eat as much. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I just find that it's naturally um, self-limiting, really, than much more so than it was was beforehand. Interesting, yeah. and I, I've I've seen a lot of people say that, and I've been intrigued. My main concern is eating raw means uh, risking pathogens and mm. getting sick. Do you have any worries about that? Not really, because. I, I I mean I don't eat anything like pork raw or chicken raw. Um, I'm quite you know choosy. I will eat beef. You know I mean steak if I was to cook it, it'd be very rare anyway. Um, 
but yeah, I don't really have a worry with beef. I don't have a worry with liver particularly. And as long as it's, you know, fresh and you've not got it in the sitting around for a long time. Um, and you buy it from the supermarket? Uh, no, I buy, it, I buy it from my butcher. And so you know that it's, it's, so uh, know it's, yeah. it's only a few days from the beast. Yeah. Yeah, which is great. So, uh, I mean, and the thing is, butchers tend to be pretty reasonably priced. And most people have got a, a butcher in their local vicinity. So it's, it shouldn't be that difficult to get fairly good quality meat. I mean, my husband and I were in Cyprus uh, a week ago. And um, I made friends with the local butchers quite quickly <laughs> mm. and uh, got them, you know, I had some lovely cuts of lamb um, and pork and beef and they got them to give me some extra fat and it was great. Uh, and I, I didn't worry about eating that raw and it was, it was absolutely fine. I had some uh, really fantastic ribeye, which was so cheap. It was something like three pounds for this amazing big chunk of ribeye. Wow. Um, yeah. And I had a really lovely uh, lamb chop one evening, which was really lovely and fatty. I just, you know, said, I want from that lots of fat, please, <laughs> and some extra fat. Um, and yeah, so I, yeah, I, I don't really worry too much about that as long as I know where it's come from. Um, I think I would struggle to do that. I don't think I would do that if it was from the supermarket. Mm -hmm. Just. Yeah, because it's been hanging about in its packaging and in it, you know, I don't know where it's come from, what it's been doing. Yeah. So, yes, I think you, I think you have to be a little bit wary and a, a little bit common sense, really. Um, so and certainly with things like pork and chicken, um, I would definitely cook those. I know some people do eat those raw, but I mm. don't think I would be one of them. Do you ever eat raw mince from the butcher? No. And I think that's is where you, you can end up with more of an issue with mints because there's a bigger surface area for the pathogens. Um, and also you don't know how long that's been sitting around being minced. I think if you buy a, a big you know, slab of it and mince it yourself, it wouldn't be a problem. But I think to just, even from the butcher, because it's been minced for a while, it's been sitting around, yeah, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do mints raw. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I might pluck up the courage to try some uh, <laughs> some raw steak or some raw liver or yes, something. Start with steak. And I think liver is just, it's great, but make sure you get good quality. And the way that I, I do it is I don't have like a great big chunk of liver on my plate. I slice it really finely. So it's almost like a delicacy, you know, so just thin slices of, um, of liver on the plate. And it's just, and it's so palatable. It's so nice. Um, so you can still have a fair amount, but just nicely sliced mm. thin. It I've, makes a difference. Uh, I've seen you, I think it was you, um, eat smoked fat. And yes. I really like the look of that because I love lardo in Italy, uh, where it's, you know, like a really fatty part of the, of the pig mm. and it's cured. Uh, I, I'm not, I think that I would prefer probably lamb fat or beef fat. Um, yeah, I'm, I, could, I could probably smoke it myself, and then it's it's you kill the pathogens on the outside, but you can you'll still get the flavour of it. You do, and it's I bought myself a cold smoker, and um, I make my own smoked beef fat, smoked suet, and smoked raw bone marrow, and it is absolutely gorgeous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, I've got a few friends that I make it for as well because they're just like, oh my god, that's so nice. Um, it's just really, really nice. Um, yeah, what can I say? It's, it's fabulous. Mm -hmm. Sounds great. You need to send me the recipe. For sure.
Yeah, it's easy, easy peasy. If you've got a smoker, it's uh, you're laughing. It's just really easy. And you can you can make a smoker yourself. You of... can you can actually make it out of a cardboard box. Uh-huh. I mean, I haven't made it out of a cardboard box. I do have one. It's like a little metal um, container, really. It's like a metal cupboard. Uh, but yeah, you can make it out of a, a cardboard box as long as you just buy yourself um, a little um, smoking unit. It's dead easy. And because it's not hot smoking, it's cold smoking. It's just, it's so simple. Uh-huh. Really simple. And, the, and the, the key as well is to add some salt to the fat. So I process it up in my food processor with some salt and then shape it into, you know, sort of cylinders. Interesting. And then, and then I hang it. Yeah. Uh-huh. And with the bone marrow, I use, I just put the bones in and smoke it whole like that. And then I scrape out the uh, marrow once it's done and then process that up. And it makes like a, a cream. Oh, it is gorgeous. Wow. That sounds unctuous. <laughs> really nice. Yeah, it is really nice. It's a great way to get extra fat in because it's really tasty and it's so nutritious. And mm. suet really is quite interesting because it's much more dense than beef fat. Um, so it's much more filling. Uh, and I like lardo too. I, I, um, I buy lardo uh, from uh, an online butcher actually, and then I smoke that myself. Um, and because it just comes as, as cured, but it's not smoked. Um, and I do like that too. So I, I think it's really nice just to have the different different types of fats. And I think it's important again for the different uh, nutrient quality that they bring, just to vary it up really. And the other thing I like is is cod liver. Mm. So I make. I make a nice sardine and cod liver pate and that's really, really nice too. Mm, um, very nice. Yeah. Yeah. I've just sourced some salmon roe for my mm. online shop and that's really good. I've been eating that in the last few days. goes great with anything. It's almost like a, a kind of salt replacement. Nice. Is that a fresh type or is it a dried one? It's fresh in a jar. Mm, nice. Yeah. The, the, the eggs pop in your mouth. <laughs> I haven't tried that yet. I've got yeah, but it is. But like, um, remember the sweets you used to get that used to explode in your mouth <laughs> when I was yeah. little? Yeah, not nice. Don't try that at home. <laughs> I'm sure salmon roe is much nicer, much more nutritious. Um, but no, I've I've got the uh, dried salmon roe, which is quite interesting. You kind of grate that on top of, um, which is actually quite nice. It can grate that on top of the the pate, for example, or on top of some bone marrow with, with some hard boiled eggs. That's really nice. This is stuff you get in um, in on the continent in Spain and Italy, and it's it's extremely expensive. That stuff. Yeah. Compacted roll. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. But it lasts a long time because you're only using a little bit, I guess. Um, That's so rich it, and nutritious. Yeah. Yeah. It's very it's very bata- nice. Batarga. Is that what it's called? Yes, batarga. That's right. Yeah. It is. Yeah. yeah. And this, the tuna batarga is the is the real prize at these markets. This right, the one I've got is there. cod. It's cod batarga that I've got. What color is it? It's pink. It's a very dark pinky red. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, the the tuna one was sort of reddy brown. That mm. was a lot in uh, Sardinia, and you know the, these markets and on the continent, they're just they're the where everyone goes for their food. I, I think know, we're amazing. Are, I think we're much more divorced from that in the uk oh we totally are we've we've come so far as i said before we're so far removed from what we should be eating and we're so far removed from from the buying it process you know i mean when i was a kid we used to go to the butchers and the you know all the different shops the green grocer the butcher that you know now it's all the big supermarkets god i sound old (laughs) Hmm. but um 
but yeah, it was normal to go to, uh, to little market stalls and things like that. And, and definitely abroad. I mean, they have wonderful markets with all the different dried meats and cheeses and they're mostly raw cheeses. And it's so easy to find these things, but we just don't do that. And you, you mentioned eating liver or kidney or brain or, you know, and people like, like, like it's, you know, an alien thing. And it's, it's just such a nutritious part of the animal and something that we used to eat and it was normal. Um, and now it's, it's not, we are so divorced from where we get our food, where it comes from. Um, and it's such a shame because it, it should be such a delight to um, enjoy all the different, um, you know, parts that, that uh, animals have to have to offer because there are such different nutrient um, you know, uh, such different nutrients that we can get from, from these things. So I had, I had brain for the first time in, uh, when I was in Barcelona a few months ago and the, it was just on every stall in the market. So I thought I'll get some and it, it was a lamb brain in a little container and mm. I boiled it for about five minutes and then, um, fried it with, uh, in butter and fennel seeds. And it was quite small, probably about four or five inches across. Mm -hmm. it was so filling and satiating mm -hmm. and um and it's nice isn't delicious. it i mean it's, it's absolutely delicious. Kind of creamy it's nothing like oh it's got a really strong taste and it, it's not it's like a mild creamy it's lovely it's really it's, nice it's very very good and i haven't re i haven't uh, sought it out yet but i know that asian butchers are really good for uh yes. for lamb yes. brain lamb brain you can get from asian butchers yeah you can and some places you might be able to get pig brain but you're not going to be able to get um, beef, unfortunately. But um, not since uh, Kreutzfeldt Jakob yes. disease came yeah. on the yeah. scene. Yeah, yeah. That's but yeah, from enough. the halal butchers, you can definitely get the sheep brain. Yeah, yeah. Well, I might actually, I might actually do that. Um, <laughs> I'm getting hungry <laughs> talking about, talking about food. Um, so sweet breads. Sweet breads are the other thing you need to try. They're really good. I, oh, I, I get them from them. Yeah. I love yeah, sweetbreads. Okay. I tried them. Um, I had them in a restaurant in London called Barafina, which I love. Um, mm -hmm. And it's like a tapas place. And so it was lamb sweetbreads, uh, which is like, it, the, it's a collective name for the pancreas and... Um, the thymus. It's usually the, the thymus glands. Yeah. yeah. Mm. yeah. And uh, it's, a, it's like the brain. It's a very mild, um, not overly awfully flavor. And it was cooked in butter with a little chicken stock and some capers wow really yeah. nice yeah they're very nice i either just lightly fry them or i slow cook them and they're really nice slow cooked and you yeah. get them from the asian butchers too no i actually get those from a, a local butcher they wow. um it's a, 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 a not that local to me but they are in just um down um about an hour away and uh they get them quite i get a buy a whole load from them um because they have an abattoir connected to their um, butcher shop and yeah they do, do it it's, it's interesting because i'm obviously a very rare local customer to get this because all their awful um sweetbreads and things goes abroad hmm. because they just don't have a market for it here but they, they saved me a, a, a few kilos. <laughs> <I go laughs> what and get do you do? do? You freeze it and then yeah. portions and then just defrost yes. and cook it. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Because it's such, it's a long way for me to go otherwise. Um, so I just, I get a whole load and freeze it in little bags and then, uh, yeah, portion sizes. 
and then take it out as I need it. And then I make, I make all sorts of things with them as well. Things like, you know, I I make frittatas with, with various different things in like um, sweetbreads or brain or things like that. It's really nice. Mm. Yeah. There's there's a lot of tactics to get more awful into your, into your diet, but easy. uh, Liver is a very strong flavor for me and kidney, but uh, the brain and the, uh, the sweetbreads, I, I don't really need to be convinced. It's just, I could have them with anything. Yeah, they're very nice. Well, it's been really great talking and I really appreciate you coming on. Um, where can oh, people... Thank you for having me. Sure. Where can people find you? Um, well, I have my website, which is lisabaileyhealth.com. And uh, if people want to connect with me there, they can and schedule any uh, consultations if they have any issues. I'm on Facebook. I have a Facebook page, which again is Lisa Bell. Lisa Bailey Health. Um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram, same thing, Lisa Bailey Health or L Bailey Health. And uh, yeah, I'd be happy to connect with people and um, share some stories. That'd be great. But uh, thank you for inviting me. It's been really interesting chatting with you. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you. I'll speak to you soon. Take care. Cheers. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Thanks, and see you next time.